0: Good to see y'all. Get some more warm bodies in here, get the air temperature up a little bit, it'd be great. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to go ahead and get started. If I haven't met you yet before, my name is Micah Walters. I'm one of the lay elders here at the church. So I have a wife, Joanna, and then three little kids that you'll see part of the chaos running around here after service. So it's a joy to be with you this morning. We're going to be continuing our discussion of the covenants. So Josh last week talked about the covenant of grace as we see it in the Old Testament. This week we're going to continue that conversation, but particularly look at how that looks in the New Testament. Um, Yeah, so as we get started this morning, Christopher, do you think you could just open us up in prayer? Mm, amen. Yeah, so if you didn't grab a handout, there are handouts in the back. I think that'll just be helpful as we go along. They got a lot of the Bible verses we'll be looking up. Um, so as, as Josh talked about last week there in that first point, what we're going to talk about, while well, we're talking about the covenant of grace, particularly in the New Testament, it starts back in the Old Testament. And so last week we looked at Genesis 3.15. Right after man has sinned, God's talking to Adam and to Eve. The Lord says to the serpent, because you have done this thing, cursed are you above the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so Genesis chapter 3, right after man's fall, God gives the first promise back to mankind that, there is one who's gonna come, who's gonna rescue and redeem his people. And so that's where the, the covenant of grace starts, that God's promising that by grace through his son he's gonna redeem his people. And that's a, a promise that is repeated often throughout the pages of Scripture. Um and throughout the Old Testament as a foreshadowing of what was gonna come in Christ. So let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, Jeremiah 31, th- verses 31 through 34. If someone could read that for me when we get there. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34.
1: Behold. will be thereby, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, his, and each his brother, saying, No, Lord, but they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Mm,
0: thank you. Yeah, so just here, even in the Old Testament, this is one of the many passages that we could go to, where the prophets are saying, Hey, look, Israel, the covenants that I've given you, the ways that I've interacted with you, they're pointing forward to something that, that is to come. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to put my law on your heart. And so there's just this sense of anticipation that's building all the way throughout the Old Testament, where God is continually reminding his people, there's something coming. There's something coming. There's something coming. And so I think just, the, just those pictures that God gives in the Old Testament There's lots of ways that those things that God did and interacted with his people foreshadow and point forward to what was to come in Christ. So we certainly see here in in the prophets, like in Jeremiah's, Jeremiah just prophesied that there's a new covenant that's going to come. If you read through Isaiah, you see the same thing. The Lord's promising a new covenant, or even through Ezekiel, a lot of promises. So the prophets clearly testify to the covenant that's going to come. But I think also more than that, the ways that God interacted with his people through his law, like Josh talked about last week, also foreshadow and also point to the coming covenant. And so we read in Galatians chapter three, how the law was supposed to imprison us and lead us to Christ. It was supposed to show us that we weren't able to do the things that God wanted us to do on our own. and was supposed to point us to Christ. I think the, the people that God gives to the covenant people of Israel also help demonstrate this. And so he's going to give David, right, who's going to be a king after God's own heart, who's going to foreshadow the true everlasting king that's going to come. He's going to give prophets to his people. They're going to be the types of the prophet that Christ was to come. And so the, the people throughout the Old Testament also foreshadow and point to Christ and the one who was to come. I also think that the judgments of God that you see in the Old Testament, right? the judgments that God is going to speak to particular people, to his people Israel, going to speak to the nations, he's speaking in judgment, he's talking about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath, has a particular fulfillment and a particular time and place in the Old Testament, but is also looking forward to the day when God was going to visit his wrath on his son and that God was going to atone for the iniquity of his people. And so just throughout the Old Testament, we have all these we have these shadows, we have these types, we have these promises that are all pointing the people of the Old Testament telling them to look forward, looking forward to the promise, looking forward to the day that God was going to fulfill his word to his people. And so that's repeated throughout the rhythm of scripture to the point that when Jesus is going to come and he's going to show up, that he's going to expect that the people of Israel are going to read the Old Testament and what are they going to see when they read the Old Testament? What, what were the people of Israel supposed to see when they read the Old Testament? Him as a
2: fulfillment.
0: Yeah, they're supposed to see Christ. And he's going to chide the Pharisees for not understanding the things that were written in the Old Testament and seeing that they were written about Christ as a fulfillment of all that God had done throughout the ages in interacting with his people to prepare the way, to prepare their hearts, to lead them to Christ. And so that's the great thing that we get to look at today, right? We're not in the Old Testament. We don't have the shadows. We're not seeing through a veil. We see clearly. We see into the face of Christ himself revealed in the Gospels. And so that's the, the wonderful thing that we get to study as the covenant of grace is continued in its revelation. So, what we want to look at today, we want to look at how that covenant is similar and how it builds on what God had revealed to his people in the Old Testament but also rejoicing in the newness of the revelation and the new things that that covenant and the way that God has revealed to his people, revealed himself to his people, the new things that the church today has that we didn't have in the past. Um, And so one of the ways that you'll sometimes hear this referred to is is in dispensations. So dispensation just refers to the fact that God deals differently with people throughout different times in history. And so a dispensation for the Old Testament The old people, covenant people of God, they were related to God through sacrifices. Right? God commanded that they were to kill animals. That animal was symbolic of taking their sin on it, sacrificed to God, in order they might come before God. Well, we don't do that today. We're under a different dispensation, and so now we come through Christ, who is our sacrifice, the Lamb of God. I do think it's important, though, that as as we think about it, that we're talking about it as a single covenant, right? Like this is the way that God has revealed himself to his people, and so we wanna look at it as a whole, what are the themes that tie across scripture, the things that tie together how God has revealed himself to his people, but we also then wanna take apart and look at, well, what are some of those particular different dispensations and different ways that's looked kind of throughout God's redemptive history? Um, Yeah, as we get going though, maybe just a question to get us thinking, um, one of the, and we're, we'll talk about this more as we go on, but one of the primary foundational elements that Josh talked about last week was that it is, it's faith that unites us to the Father, right? Christians of long ago in Abraham's day, Christians today are united to Christ through faith, through grace, that it's that vehicle that God has chosen to use to redeem a people to himself. So why of all the things that God could have used, why do you think it was faith that God chose to use to redeem His people? What is yeah? What, what, how would you guys think about the significance of that?
3: Well, it's
0: not about doing. It. Yeah. So like Ephesians chapter two, it's not by works of the law, but by God's grace that we're saved. In Yeah. That's good.
2: It also shows the, the insufficiency of man, but, but also highlights the sufficiency of God. Mm. Um, it says something about God that it would require something from outside of us to help us to see.
0: Good. Yeah, you know, Similarly,
2: yeah. is something that is, um, well as a face, like the eyes of your, your heart, you know, it's, it's a mm.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, I think you all are are right on it, right? This is, faith is ultimately a statement about like God and who he is, that salvation is his work, the way that he's worked with his people. And then I think just all the other things that we're attempted to make the defining aspect of our relationship with God, like how much do we love him? How well do we obey him? How well are we loving and relating to other people? Are our affections in the right place? Those then ultimately become a, a test and an outworking of our faith. And so that when we're not obeying the way God has commanded us to, that then shows to highlight the weakness of our faith, right? And it drives us back to dependence on God, crying out, God, (laughs) help me in my unbelief, increase my faith, that I might know you, love you, understand you, and do what you've asked me to do. Because I think it, it ultimately highlights that we don't have the ability in of ourselves to please God, to obey God, to do what God has commanded us to do, and it forces us into dependence So it forces us independence at the front side as we are saved and justified before God, but I think it's a continual process whereby it continually forces us to come to the throne and ask for grace, recognizing that we don't have the ability to please and honor God the way that we're supposed to. Um, All right, so we're going to go on to the, the second point then, the continuity of the covenant of grace in the Testaments. Continuity of covenants and grace in the testament. And so these are kind of the big themes that are kind of undergirding throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, the ways that God has related to his people, kind of the framework, if you will, for his covenant promises to save a people to himself. So the the first one that we're going to talk about, then, is just the promises that God has given to his people, the promises that God has given to his people. Let's turn to Romans chapter 4. And so in Romans, Paul is describing how it is that people are saved, how it is that man can actually be justified before God. And a critical part of his argument is explaining how Abraham, the father of the faith of the Israelites, how it was that Abraham was actually saved, how it was that God's promises to Abraham actually worked, right? Because if it worked differently, if it was by works that Abraham was justified and that the promises of God to Abraham were made, then it's by works that we too come before God and find our standing. Can someone read verses uh, 13 through 25 for me of Romans chapter 4? Romans chapter 4, verses 13
2: through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world and not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherence of the law who ought to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believes, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. for our trespasses, and raised
0: for our justification. Yeah, so just a really rich portion of Scripture, tying the promises of God to Abraham, that Abraham would inherit the world, that Abraham's offsprings would be heirs with God to all things that God had created, continuing that forward into Romans chapter 8, that Abraham was promised that he would inherit all things. And the way that Abraham inherited that promise was by by faith, right? It was the faith of Abraham that God looked at and said, that's what I'm going to credit to you as righteousness, that you believed in me, you trusted in me. It wasn't the things that Abraham did. And in fact, you even see like the, all, the different th- all the different ways that Abraham was tempted to not trust God, all the things that could have weakened his faith, all the things that could have pulled him away. If you just look back in Genesis, the things that Abraham actually did, he actually did a lot of things that directly disobeyed God and ran contrary to the commandments of God, lying, committing adultery. In terms of just like the actions that Abraham did, maybe he wasn't really that great of a guy. <laughs> but it was Abraham's faith that God looked at and credited to him as righteousness. And that's the same faith is not only for Abraham, but it's also for us. And so the all the promises of God that we see in Scripture, all of them, are ours through faith. And that runs across the Testaments. So that's true for Abraham in the Old Testament. That's true for us today. All the promises of God, and there's many of them, the bulwark of the Christian faith, those are founded on, on faith. So we share the same promises of Abraham. We share the same promises of those that were in the Old Testament. Our faith rests today, as it did then, on Christ his Son, that we too can be heirs of the world with Abraham. So Christians today share the same promise as Christians in the Old Testament. We also share, share then point B, the same blessings, the same blessings as the people of faith of old. So the same kinds of blessings, maybe not like word for word, but the same kinds of blessings, the same language, the same hopes, the same dreams are found between the two different dispensations in the New and the Old Testament. So I think a good example of that is the way that David will repeatedly speak the joy of his salvation, the joy of his salvation in the Lord. You can see that like in Psalms 51. Jesus talks about the same kind of joy when he's talking in Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure which a man is found and covered up in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field, right? So that, that same joy that says that this is the, the joy that orients all of my life, there is no greater joy that I have, is salvation from the Lord. So you see that kind of similar theme there. But I think there's lots of other kind of blessings that we see kind of mirrored across the covenant. So I'm just I'm curious what, what other things that you guys would think of that you would say, yeah, these are these are blessings, these are things, these are gifts that God has given that kind of span across the covenants that would apply to believers in Abraham's day and believers in our day as well. good. He'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. And then in the New Testament that same promise again you know that Christ will keep those in perfect peace. Yeah, that's good. Others? Our identity and our adoption as his children mm. both covenants he chose a people to himself
1: and he's chosen new people to himself.
0: Yeah, that's good. So even the way that he would like describe us as people we're his children, the children of Israel, and we're the, the chosen children of God. Yeah, that's great. He's sovereign,
1: that he can,
3: when all else fails, we can rest in that and know
0: that no matter what, he's sovereign and he's good. Hmm. Right. No, I think it does, because that's, I mean, that's what God was trying to teach the people of Israel over and over again, right? So as the people of Israel are coming up out of Egypt, and it seems like they're going to be destroyed by the Egyptians. God's going to tell them to not fear, but to trust in him. And then he's going to, through his providential means, he's going to save them, right? Cast the Egyptians into confusion, drown them in the Red Sea. And throughout all of that, the people of Israel are supposed to see that God is the one who sovereignly controls and protects them. It is with them and is for them and is good and those are the same promises that like our hearts are supposed to rest in <laughs> whatever circumstances whether armies are kind of embattling our own hearts it's the same Lord with the same protections that's good yeah brother also just peace peace Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, because I think especially as you read through the Psalms, you see David talking that way, right? That he's blessed as the man who has peace with God. Yeah, so I think, there's, I think that also is just a rich tapestry that helps connect all of Scripture together. God's consistent blessing, his abundant love, his mercies that is poured about on his people, Is the same for all people throughout all time who believe in him and come to him in faith. Point C, then, we kind of have touched on this a little bit, but we all share the same gospel. There's a continuity across the covenants, and it's the same gospel that is preached, the same gospel that saves. And so in Galatians 3.18, we even see that, where Paul writes, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. That's just a really interesting phrase, right? That that was God preaching the gospel to Abraham. Abraham was preached the gospel, the good news. Abraham heard the good news and received it by faith. And that's the same gospel message that happens today. All the nations of the earth are blessed in Christ Jesus. And so I think even as we just saw in, in Romans, chapter 4 that we read earlier that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works, that's the kind of the linchpin or one of the linchpins in Paul's arguments of this is what salvation by grace through faith looks. So there's the same gospel message, the same good news of how God saves sinners that runs kind of throughout the Old Testament. And so that was something that Joss even then talked about last week just as as we look back to Christ for our righteousness, the, the saints in the Old Testament would have looked forward to the promised one who was to come, who was going to die on their behalf, the sacrifice of God that was going to save sins, you know, save sinners from their sins. Other places you might see that would even be in like Habakkuk 2 4. Habakkuk 2 4, where the prophet tells us, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And that's another verse that Paul in Romans is going to refer back to using the words of the Old Testament to, to demonstrate the continuity that, that the same gospel message by grace through faith is how God has acted with his people throughout time and throughout history. Um, yeah, and so I think that, that that really for the Christian, I think that really gives a lot of, of hope in the bedrock promises of God, right that This is the way for millennia that Christians have come to God in faith. It's the same gospel message. It's also the same point D there. It's the same hope and the same support. It's the same hope and the same support. Um, So I think the same hope. Uh, Let's flip over to uh, Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter sixteen. Yeah, so we're not going to read all of it. We we're just here a couple of weeks ago, uh, or just recently, with uh, Garrett preaching through Luke chapter sixteen, with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So there, in verse nineteen, there was a rich man, and there was Lazarus, and then when what happens when they die? Down in verse twenty-two, where do they where do they go when when they both die? Where is, it that they, where is it that they go? Yeah, they go to Sheol, the place of the dead, and the rich man goes to, to hell, to Hades, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's side. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to the same place, right? We have the same hope. We have the same end. So in Jesus' day, those that by faith trust in the Son of God were going to Abraham's side. Christians today that by faith trust in the Son of God, are going to Abraham's side into Abraham's bosom. So we have, the same, we have the same hope. We're saved to the same end that we might be with God for eternity. And so I think that, yeah, I think that is something that we share. There's a, there's a same hope. We're going to the same place, but also the same support. And I, and I think that it's from the same root that we come, that we have the same help and support from God. So in, in Romans... Chapter 11, verses 16 through 18. Paul's going to write, describing about the Jews. He says that if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump and the root is holy, and so are the branches. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, talking to the Gentiles, a wild olive shoot were grafted into the others, it is now sharing the same nourishing root of the olive tree right? So there's, there's one root, Christ himself and all of the branches, whether Jew or Gentile, whatever nation that you're coming from, we all share that same root. So the same root that Abraham was tied into, that's what we're tied into. And so the same support, the same source of life, the same source of joy in Christ himself is true for all people at all times that believe in Jesus Christ. And then finally, so the same hope, same support, and then finally, then the, the last point, point E. So we all share, we all share the same, the same end. We all share the same end. Can someone read for me John 5, verse 39? Just go ahead and read it when you get there. John 5:39. Yeah. So all scripture testifies about Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's the end, right? That God's son might be glorified, that God the Father himself might be glorified. It's in his son. And that's where, our, that's where our goodness, our hope, our joy, our peace, our love comes from. It's in that same end that Christ himself might be glorified. So all the scriptures of the Old Testament are written about Christ. All the scriptures of the New Testament pertain, pertain to Christ that all God's people might have their hope realized in him and in his atonement for their sins. Yeah, so that, that list is just a list of some of the kind of common threads of continuity between the covenants. That's certainly not comprehensive. We could add a lot more to that list. But just in thinking of kind of some of those that we just talked about, what do you think are the implications to like Christians today about the continuity, just that the way that God consistently deals with his people? What do you think some of the implications are? Yeah. Um, I was thinking that last week when the teacher
1: highlighted in um it was Genesis where God swears against himself and passes through the um, through the flames for Abraham that God is sworn against himself. Mm. So
0: Good. Yeah. Yeah, God cannot fail and will not fail. Yeah. Other thoughts? Other implications? I think
2: also just yeah, the, fact that <coughs> the fact that we see so many testimonies of his, his faithfulness, his keeping of his promises.
0: That's really good. Merck, did you have something? Oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just thought I saw your hand. <laughs> yeah, one great application that gives uh,
4: me comfort and Christians comfort is the fact that um, he doesn't change. Mm. Yeah. It's it's constant, and that gives us like an assurance that um, that we're His, and that's how it always has been.
0: Mm. Yeah. That's really good. Take care. And
3: I think I love what you just said because, like, if the wheels come off, life—if the wheels just come off, life, nothing happens. to God. Mm. He's still there, and he's—he's he's still there, and he can execute his plan through the most. Painful and baffling circumstances, if you just hold fast to him, mm. you know, really everything else can crumble and it doesn't really matter because he never does. He's never even shaken. Yeah.
0: You know? Yeah. got to trust all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really good. Yeah, I think there's some real bulwarks for your soul <laughs> here in these promises. The way that God is faithful, consistent, loving, compassionate, acting for his people, not against his people, acting for their good, not against them. I think it also just makes your Old Testament just come alive, right? Like, you read your Old Testament, and in them you see the promises of God to his people that apply to you today. And you see the way that God was faithful to his people then, that he's also faithful to you now. And you look at all the, the people and the things that God gave that point to his son, and you can rejoice in those. And so when we see, like, a David in the Old Testament, and we can read the life of David, and that we can see the greater King who was to come and Jesus Christ himself. And so I think there's there's a lot there that the continuity really is what ties the whole Bible together. That's what gives it a single redemptive narrative. That's what helps it make sense. So I think there's a lot to rejoice in. The way that God, or even too, that that God orchestrated all of time and space and history and all of the cosmos in order to bring his plan of redemption to pass, right? The way that he moves empires, the way that he literally aligns the stars so that there's stars at the right place at the right time for his son's birth to announce his coming, right? He's working all these things, and it's the same God that works in our hearts and our lives, that he cares about us individually. Yeah, so I, think there's, I think there's a lot to rejoice in, just through thinking about the way that God has consistently, faithfully, repeatedly dealt with his people through grace, trusting in his son, So the next point that we want to talk about is just the the discontinuity. So there's a lot of things that tie it together. But praise God, Christ has come. We're not under the old dispensation. We're under the new things that have come, the new covenant in his blood, as Christ himself is going to tell us. So I think just the first point there, the first point is just that the new revelation is superior to the old covenants. The new revelation is superior to the old covenants. And that's, that happens in a lot of different ways. The first, just being that we now have a perfect priest. We now have a perfect priest who is able to save and redeem us from our sins. Can someone get um, Hebrews three verses one through six for me? Hebrews three verses one through six. Therefore. Thank you. Yeah, so the Israelites would have looked back to Moses as the one who gave them the covenant of law, and Aaron, his brother, who mediated as the high priest between the people and God. And the writer of Hebrews is going to say, something better than Moses is here. The person who gave Moses the law is here. The one who built the house that Moses lived in is here. (laughs) Look to Jesus. Don't look to Moses. Look to Jesus. He's he's better than Moses. Moses only pointed forward. Moses was just a shadow of what was to come. Moses was a direction, a sign on the road that said, go to Christ. Christ is the the faithful one over God's house as the son, the one that built the house himself. And so just throughout the book of Hebrews, you're going to see that kind of repeated over and over again, that Jesus Christ is the high priest that saves his people from their sins. And one of the things that Hebrews is going to talk about in chapter 7, chapter 7, verses, so in verse 23, chapter 7, verse 23, the former priests, the Levitical priests, the priests that were descended from Aaron, the former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those that draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so the Old Testament priest died. They sinned. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. But Christ Jesus (laughs) doesn't sin, he doesn't die. Every time you sin, he still lives before God to make intercession for you on your behalf to the Father. He does that for all of the saints. So Christ is the, the better priest, the perfect priest, the one who died for sins once for all and then sat down at the right hand of God, proclaiming that it was finished. And so he never has to offer another sacrifice. When you sin today, Christ Jesus' death paid for that on the cross. And he never has to offer another <coughs> sacrifice for any other sin that you or anyone else could commit. And so there's now nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because all of your sins have been atoned for. And all of the sins of anyone who is separated from God can be atoned for by the blood of Christ if they come to him in repentance and faith. And so I think that we now have a perfect priest is a great hope for the people of God, a finality to the payment and the atonement of sins that Christ has accomplished, and a permanence to Christ before the Father advocating on our behalf. And there's a lot... The christian to rejoice in <laughs> that we live in the new covenant where we can see the full revelation of jesus christ himself and that as, as paul will talk about in corinthians that it's seeing christ that we are transformed like him into his glory so sure, jesus is the better priest but he's then also a better prophet he's also a better prophet um, so i do have matthew 24 there we're not you don't you you certainly can turn there i'm not going to read from it in particular that's talking about the story of, of Jonah and how Noah, or sorry, the story of Noah and how Noah's going to testify of the wrath of God to come, of an earthly flood with temporal judgment. Jesus Christ is going to testify of the eternal wrath to come and how men can be saved from the eternal flood waters of God's judgment, which are going to fall for their sin. And so, just as Noah is a picture of how people can be saved through the ark. Christ, too, is a picture of how people can be saved by trusting in him and coming to him for refuge and strength. He's a better, he's a better prophet, the eternal prophet. I also think, too, of the story of Jonah is also a great example of how Christ can serve as a better prophet. And so, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. <laughs> what happens when Jonah's told to go to Nineveh? He doesn't go. He doesn't go. He runs the other way. Christ is told to go to the cross. What happens when Christ is told to go to the cross? Yeah, he willingly submits and he goes to the cross. <laughs> what happens? So when Jonah, goes, when Jonah goes to Nineveh then and he preaches the gospel, the good news, repent of your sins, what does, what does Jonah do then? What happens to Jonah? <laughs> yeah, He goes and pouts, right? He, goes, he doesn't want people to be saved. <laughs> he doesn't actually want them to turn from their sins, so he goes and he pouts and he's upset because his plant dies, but he has no compassion for the city of hundreds of thousands of people that are about to suffer God's wrath and judgment, right? He wants them to suffer God's judgment, right? Christ Jesus has compassion for his people, right? He wants people to turn from their sins. He wants people to experience the love of God. That's why he went to the cross and suffered your punishment. That's why he died for you. It's because he loves you. And he has a deep, abiding, compassionate, merciful love for his people, so Jesus is the better prophet that shows us what is to come of the life to come in God for eternity, the eternal things that are to last, the treasures that we can hold on to. And so I think that we have that through Jesus Christ in the new covenant in a way that we did not have it in the old covenant. We have a surety of revelation of what is to happen to those that hope in God for eternity, how the church Collectively as a whole, we'll live with God in the new heavens and the new earth. We have that in a new and a better sense through Jesus Christ in his prophetic role. We also just know that Jesus Christ is now our eternal king, our eternal covenant king. Um, So does someone either, can either read or have memorized Psalm 110 verse 1? Psalm 110 verse 1. You can read that when you get it. It's 110-1, one? did I get the wrong one? Sorry about that. Yeah, so the Lord, who's the Lord, the first, who's the Lord? Yahweh, God. The Lord says to, so this is David talking, the Lord says to my Lord, who's the second Lord? Jesus. That's right. And Jesus is going to apply this to himself. The Lord, God, says to my Lord, Jesus Christ, you know, sit at my hand until your enemies are in a footstool. And so this is how David, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ can be both David's son and David's Lord, like we sing about. Both David's son and David's Lord. Jesus precedes David, he's the eternal king of the covenant that rules and reigns in a way that David never could. So we can even just think about the ways in which David is going to fall short as a leader of God's people. That he's not going to rule good, he's not going to do justice, he's not going to seek mercy. We're Jesus Christ as the King of the Covenant, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who will come, the sword in his mouth to judge those who do not turn to Christ, do not turn in repentance to God, the one who will sit in judgment and rule forever. He's the one that's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah 37. The house of David will never lack a descendant to sit on the throne. And So we have a better eternal king in the new covenant than we do in the old. And so those are just some of the ways that the new revelation is superior to the old covenant in Jesus Christ himself, the one who is the prophet, priest, and king, the ultimate fulfillment of the shadows of the types that we had in the Old Testament. Some other ways that the, old, the New Covenant is different from the old. Point B there, that truth in the old was partly hidden. It was like we talked about. It was like looking through a veil. But truth in the new is plainly revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, can someone read for me 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 18.
1: Of
0: second second uh, three, verse uh, chapter three. I'm you in chapter, No, no, you're good, <laughs> Vanessa. No worries. <laughs> you're good, sister. Uh, chapter three, verse uh, twelve to eighteen.
4: that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is the way. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the
0: Spirit. Mm, Thank you. Yeah, so just the idea that through the Old Testament, there's just this veil that lies over our eyes. You just can't see it, it's not clear, you're in a fog. Throughout the Old Testament, there's just this sense of anticipation that something's coming, something's coming. Even when you think about like an advent, right? Just pregnant with anticipation. What is God going to do? And that's what the Old Testament was supposed to do. But it didn't fully and completely reveal to God's people how that was going to happen, right? And it was still by faith that God is going to work, he's going to do something. But the completeness of that revelation did not come until Jesus Christ. And so when Christ comes, the veil is lifted. And now we, with unveiled face, are looking directly and beholding the glory of Christ. So the Israelites, so the the reference there is to when when Moses would go and talk to the Lord, he would come back and what would what would happen with his face? Yeah, it was shiny. <laughs> I was like, Israelites like it's too much, right? So Moses Moses, when he comes back and talks to the people after talking to the God, as a reflection of God's glory, not even God's glory itself, but just a reflection, a human reflection of that glory, is gonna cover his face so that the Israelites aren't terrified by the reflection of the presence of the glory of God, right? Well, what is what is it that Christians are able to look at in the new covenant? Right? We're not looking we're not looking at a veiled reflection of the human face that is the reflection of the glory of God. We're not even looking at Moses' face unveiled, which is a reflection of the glory of God. We look at the glory of God itself through Jesus Christ. Right? And that is then that's what Paul says there. That's what that's what changes us. Beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so we have a fullness of revelation, a more complete view of who God is, what He's done for His people, how He's saved and loved His chosen ones, and rejoice in that. (laughs) That we now know those things which were hidden, the things that the angels longed to look into, the things that the angels rejoiced in we now have at our feet in the Word of God that we might know them, that we might love them, that we might be transformed into the image of Christ. So I think there's, there's, much, good, <laughs> there's much good that comes from soaking ourselves in the Scriptures, the most good that comes from seeing Christ in the Scriptures, rejoicing in God's revelation to his people. Although even, even as you think about that point, right, like even now there's an incompleteness in the revelation to God's people, right? So we we've been revealed, much more has been revealed than was revealed in the Old Testament. But we still on this earth look dimly in a mirror until the day that until what day? When does that change? When is the revelation to God's people finally and fully completed? Yeah, when Christ returns and we no longer exercise faith we no longer work to faith. Faith has passed away. Faith, hope, and love continue, but faith itself will pass away because we will be in God's presence. We won't be hoping in things that we don't see because we will see them directly. And so that's the, the great hope that Christians ultimately look forward to, and that's the hope that is revealed through Christ in a way that we can see it, taste it, and apply it to our lives. Um, some other ways that the covenants are different. Point C there. The revelation in the Old Covenant was mainly carnal and material. It dealt with the things, uh, the, the rules of law do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10, the writer of Hebrews talks about how the, the Old Covenant dealt only with food and drink, with various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and the more perfect tent not made with hands, not this creation. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so the old covenant focused on, on this stuff, right? The things that you can touch with your hands, the things that you can see with your eyes, carnal, temporal, but it was never meant to have its foundation rooted in those things. They were always rooted in the heavenly things that they pointed forward to. So that's part of what Christ is even going to come and rebuke the Pharisees over. That they spend all this time washing, what what do they do? They spend all the time washing the outside of the glass. They're just whitewashed tombs that look pretty on the outside, but on the inside, the true substance that those temporal things pointed to, they're just dead man's bones. They were filthy, dirty glasses. So in the new revelation, the spiritual things, the things of God, the eternal heavenly things, through the blood of Christ, are put on full display and are magnified and the clear connection between how the temporal things that we have now, what we do in the body, how we please the Lord with what we've been given in terms of physical things is now clearly linked to the spiritual realities of of heaven and of how Christ died to redeem it all and how he wants us by faith to come to him. And it doesn't primarily revolve around what we do and how we think and act it primarily revolves in the faith that we have in him and what Christ has done and how he has atoned for our sins in the body. Um, yeah, so there's a lot more that we can say on that. <laughs> but for time, we're going to move on to point D. Point D. So the old covenant was for one people. And what people was that for? Israel. Yeah, Israel, the Jews. The new covenant is for all nations. Uh, Can someone read for me Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6? Ephesians 3, 4 to 6. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Yeah. And so one of those mysteries of the gospel, one of those mysteries that was not revealed to the people of the Old Testament as clearly as it is today, is that the Gentiles from all nations, including most of us, I don't know, is anyone in here ethnically Jewish? No? Okay. <laughs> so we're all Gentiles then. Um, we're all Gentiles. We all benefit from the mystery of Christ, that Christ has now saved the nations. Christ is not just saving the Jews as an ethnic people, but he's saving all those who share the faith of Abraham. So I think even just the pictures that you see in Revelations where it talks about the tree of life, which leaves are healing for the nations, about the great multitude from all tribes, tongues, and nations are going to be standing before the throne. I think just give great pictures of the way that the, the new covenant functions that the old covenant never did and never was supposed to. So the, the new covenant is for all people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. The old covenant was primarily for the people of God, something that is different between the covenants. Point E, that in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. Um, Can someone get John 16...
1: Yeah, um, John 16, verse
0: 7. Thanks. Yeah, so the, the helper that Christ is referring to is the Holy Spirit. And so then in Acts chapter 2, after Christ returns to heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. And that's a blessing of the New Covenant that the Old Covenant did not have in the same way. Certainly the Spirit was active in the Old Covenant, but not in the same indwelling sense, in the same sense that the Spirit was now representing believers to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ, not indwelling a believer the way that he does in the New Covenant. And so in the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit has been poured out, and Christ says it's to our advantage then that we have the Helper, that the Helper can help us, with our thoughts and with our actions that can plead before us before the Father with groanings too deep for words in Romans chapter 8, even when we ourselves don't know what to say. I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of benefits. Um, I would love to talk more about this point. (laughs) We are almost out of time, so I'm not going to. Um, Yeah, so we just ran through just five or six different ways that through the New Testament, through the New Covenant, we have a superior revelation that's in Christ, We see things now that we didn't see. We have blessings and advantages in the new covenant that we didn't in the old. And so just as a question out to you, how do you think that should impact how Christians live? How should that change the way that we think? What does that that mean? Yeah. You
3: know, I always look back at the Israelites So they questioned Mm. him at every turn and complained and, you know, and now we have that full revelation. And so we Mm. need not balk at life, you know, we can always have that faith in God that, and boy,
0: he left us the Israelites as such a great reflection of us. Mm.
3: We want to walk at every step and say, God, why?
0: But there's never any point to do that. Mm. No, that's really good. That's really good. Other thoughts? For you? You about to say
2: hi? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, okay. I <laughs> 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 no, just like, uh, just how so much, how grateful. Mm.
0: It
2: definitely affects how, how we do evangelism. Um, yeah, especially in the early part, we talk about just being rooted, um, multiple different branches of one Um and then being able to go to, to the nations, yeah. knowing that you know, the gospel has been, um, yeah, the gospel has been.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really good because I think, like, even in Romans, like Romans chapter 8, I think living life in the spirit as opposed to living life in the flesh, that's one of the big takeaways from the work that Christ has done, right? The responses that we have to what we've been reading here. So some of those kinds of things in terms of what that looks like, I think foundations helps, this curriculum kind of helps flesh out and some other different lessons. Um, Yeah, there's a lot. I think y'all touched on a couple of them. But even the passages that we we're in, like in Hebrews, are going to lay out a lot of great implications, and so you have you have a couple of those. Um, again, certainly not comprehensive, but as we talked about, just turning to God in faith, <laughs> seeing Christ, rejoicing in Christ, having confidence. In Hebrews chapter four, having confidence, and then to draw near to the throne of grace. Like even just think about that for just a moment, right? Like the in the old covenant, in the old covenant the high priest only entered into the Holy Holies once a year, right, to talk to the Father, or to, to sacrifice to the Father. Um, but now, the writer of Hebrews is saying, like, you can go directly into the presence of the throne room of God, like, today. You can take your needs and your requests to him, because your sins have been atoned for through the better sacrifice of Christ Jesus himself. Or even, to all the One another commands that we see through Hebrews that flow directly from the new covenant of grace that we have. We're commanded to stir one another up to good deeds as a result of the work of Christ to assemble together with other believers. This is we're talking about in 2 Corinthians that we should trust and meditate on the promises of God that are all yes in Christ Jesus. And so all the sure, steadfast anchors of the soul that we can trust in because of what Christ has done through his revelation in the New Testament. So I think it's just a lot to, to meditate on and to think about and to apply and a lot of things to rejoice in that God has done for his people. So um, yeah, so there are some references there on the last point, on point four, some other things to think about, some other passages to maybe look at later today. Andy, do you think you could close us out in prayer? Thanks, guys.